Hey everyone, welcome back. Thanks so much for joining. Today we have Chris Shipferling, who is the, yeah, thanks, the managing partner of Global Wired Advisors. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you, man? I'm doing great. Thank you. So investment banks, acquisition, M&A all sounds very sexy and kind of like the end game for a lot of brands. Maybe I would certainly like to, to be you know in, in your wheelhouse or a, a client at some point. But what exactly is it that you do to help these transactions of a buyer and seller occur? Yeah, great question. You know, to really kind of maximize a true M&A process, you know, within an investment bank, you have to have some size and you got to have some scale, right? You know, kind of living within Main Street and, and, and really being below a specific EBITDA mark or an EBITDA level, it just is a very difficult to run a true middle market or institutional level process. And on the, on the other end, you know, you come up with a true delta between if you just did it yourself or if you, you know, actually did it through an investment bank or even a business broker. So really kind of size and scale and the way that we like to, you know, tangibly define that is uh, one and a half million of, of EBITDA to 10 is typically the clients that we're taking on. Highly focused. That's an annual. EBITDA. Yeah, it's an annual, 12, you know, trail, call it trailing 12 months of EBITDA. Focused heavily in digital consumer. So what does it really look like? Kind of the Reader's Digest version is you know, throughout the entire process, we're looking to show the show where the business is going in its fully optimized form. So that requires a whole level of, of kind of data digging, digging into the company, understanding the business, understanding the current functions, understanding the historical information about the business and where it's been. And then really it's about painting that Picasso around that around forward opportunity. And then what we do is we take close to three to four weeks to really prepare a deal for market. We put together beautiful marketing materials. A marketer like yourself would be very, very happy. And, uh, you know, it's about a 60, 70 page SIM that we're putting together, not in PowerPoint, at least on our end. We're doing some real copywriting on the book to make, to create a narrative, right? And really what we're doing is just what I said, the marketing materials are going to outline where the company has been, where it is today and where it's going. And the presentation of that data is going to be top notch. It's going to be something that you would expect out of a very professional investment bank. And then we effectively create the market, right? So we're out there, we're looking for the right buyers for your business. And the big myth that's around business brokers have spread it where I've got a buyer list, I've got a buyer list, or they may even email some of the audience directly and say, I have a buyer lined up for you. It's just all BS, you know, going through a real sophisticated professional process, what you do is we've got real, you know, he heavily invested um, in software to help us identify acquisition activity and also just any type of really M&A or investment activity within specific verticals and sectors. And you're identifying the right buyers for those businesses. And then you go and you literally go and talk to those buyers. <laughs> it's about as easy as that, right? You email, you call, you know, there's a myth that I, I have to have a Rolodex. I mean, we've been doing this for so long. We know all the folks, we know a lot of folks, private equity, traditional private equity funds, family offices, and even corporate strategics within specific verticals who are interested in e-commerce. So we have a Rolodex, but it's a myth. Every single business, you know, you if you came to me in two years with your, with your product and your brand, well, that buyer set is going to look drastically different as it should. It should be fully customized to your particular brand and product. And also, you know, who would be in particular interested? And then you also have to segment that interest level. 
there are going to be people who are really, really interested. That's more like corporate strategics and, and strategic private equity funds. And then there's going to be or just a bit more vanilla interested in say your particular vertical. And then there might be other folks who are just interested in, I just need something digital. <laughs> so sure. there's segmenting when it comes to that part of the process. So yeah, you go through all of that and, and we're basically no pun intended from where you came from, but we are a jungle. We are a jungle scout and a Sherpa is what we call ourselves. <laughs> okay. you know, we're, we're basically helping our client and leading our client through the process and quarterbacking everything from, our own due diligence up front, the entire marketing process, identifying a buyer, and then, then we're heavily involved in the closing of the business. That's where the most turbulence always comes into play. Okay. What is the general timeframe of, you know, you, you, you've finished your marketing materials, yeah. which might take two months. You've done your due diligence, you find a buyer, and then like, all right, letter of intent goes out. Yep. Is it as easy as like signing some documents or, or then there's a lot of like... Yeah. Being in escrow and whatever. Can you describe like the great questions? There is a lot to there's a lot to every single piece of the process. And so, you know, getting the deal prepped for market, we're heavily codependent on our client or clients or the corporation that we that we've uh, engaged with because we're asking for a lot of information. So ideally we'd like for that to take no longer than a month. And then we've got a marketing process where we'd ideally, just depending on the business, you know. And we've got even different businesses currently right now on deck that's part of our client roster that, you know, one was able to get a trade within four weeks, three weeks, a buyer, and then right to close. And then another one that we've got on deck is a, is a more sizable business forward projected EBITDA is 11 million. And it's more of a middle market style deal. It's going to take a little bit longer. It's a very specific company that needs a very specific buyer. Fantastic business but it's going to take a bit longer. So, you know, when you're, when you're speaking, when you're speaking about time frame and time length, you know, it really just depends on the type of business. Now let's take, let's pick on an Amazon business, right? There's a lot of interest in Amazon based businesses right now. So that time frame is going to be short sure. right now, but it's shop up and all Shopify business much longer because there's not nearly as much venture that's chasing after shop all Shopify you really have to have a specific level of size. And then we have to shop you to true funded sponsors. And they just take a lot longer to a value a deal. And they take a lot longer to close than this other, what we call fast money <laughs> chasing after Amazon businesses. It's, they want to close you ASAP. We actually have to slow them down and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> we got to go through real diligence. So anyways, and then, yeah. So what does it look like when you, you know, kind of going back a little, a little bit to your, to your question, once you identify a buyer and then you sign the LOI, that's a non-binding agreement that basically outlines this is what the deal is going to look like, but it's non-binding because it's not the final deal, right? So as there, as basically what it states is, as we go through diligence, all of this could potentially change. So, you know, the buyer has exclusive, that has exclusivity through the LOI process, which is about 60, 30, 30 to 60 days more. It's always more on the longer side than the shorter. And they have exclusivity during that period. So you, you have to stop marketing the company, but they also have a right if they find something to, to retrain you. And so, you know, not to completely bounce around too much and get ahead of ourselves, but this is really when, when you are pro approached directly by a fund, a lot of these new funds that have raised money to buy Amazon-based businesses, what the seller doesn't understand is that they get you an LOI really fast but during their closing period, that's when they really dig in 
And that's where a lot of times things break down. They either A, don't close or B, they get massively what we call retraded. Meaning that I may have told you I'm going to pay 5 million on the LOI, but I uncovered one, two, three, four things now that makes me want to actually only pay you 2 million. We've heard it time and time again. And that's why you need a professional to run that closing process. And again, be your quarterback or jungle scout and Sherpa to really play a lot of interference to ensure that this thing gets all the way to the closing line. And there is no discrepancy between what the offer came in at and what the closing docs actually look like too. As Got far it. as escrow, sorry, I'm going on because <laughs> I want to address yeah, escrow. Yeah. escrow. <laughs> yeah. So just to address that point. Yeah. It's, it's, it's all deal dependent. There are some deal terms that will come in. Some guys are calling them stability payments where they'll say, Hey, as long as the company doesn't basically go to hell <laughs> in, in a year, you know, with it, with it a variance under 90% of the performance of, of the closing date, and then we'll pay the extra. And then in more traditional, that's more for like these new funds that have popped up, the Thrasios and the, and the Elevates of the world, et cetera. For more of the traditional funded sponsors, those guys are usually doing about a 10% escrow. And, and it's more or less to just ensure that there's no other boogeymen that show up to the deal, you know, a year later. Got it. Okay. So going back to the, the kind of like the market in general, cause I'm sure you see a lot of businesses, you say you focus on one to 10 million EBITDA in t- trailing 12 months sales, yep. 12 right. months revenue. I'd love to learn a little bit about like what the multiples you're seeing on that. Like mm-hmm. from an arm's length, I might say, oh, it might be like, 3x so that you might get an offer of you know doing 10 million in trailing 12 months so you know 30 million and you have the business and the thought being that you would earn your money back you know in three years right maybe but then you also say it's a frothy market there's a lot of demand and so therefore that might ratchet up what those multiples are what are you seeing what are the what are the trends and and yeah front line Man, great question. So again, this is also a segmented, it's a very segmented answer. So I'll try and I'll try and cascade it and make sure that it makes sense. It, it really is very much uh, deal to deal dependent. So from deal to deal, you're going to have much different offers and much and, and could have completely different deal terms, just depending on the channel that they're selling in the platform risk that the buyer perceives, as well as just kind of looking at the overall go forward opportunity of the business. I can't say that because when a buyer in your, in your example, let's say they paid a three multiple on a $10 million EBITDA, they're not looking to recoup in three years. That's not how they look at it. Their return on equity or ROE, that needs to come a whole hell of a lot faster because they're looking at the go forward opportunity and going, yeah, it's 10 million now, but we're about to inject a lot of growth capital into this business to make it a $20 million EBITDA business very soon, but the type of capital buyer that's buying that business, it's not like you and me where we're kind of, in some ways, really kind of looking at the granular details of the actual net profitability. Those guys are all looking at forward opportunity, which translates into a forward multiple or forward enterprise value. So in effect, you know, when you, the the day of this old to even one of these larger funds that has raised money to go out and only buy Amazon-based businesses, they may buy it for a four multiple, but the day it hits their balance sheet, it's already a 16 multiple because it, it falls in line with the current valuation of the entire fund. So, I mean, that's, it's a pure arbitrage play. And even on the private equity side, it's, it's, it is arbitrage, but it's more, it's more sophisticated arbitrage. So where are we seeing multiples come in? So to kind of lay in that context, where are multiples coming in? Let's segment it and I'll just get very specific. Yeah, yeah. 
an all Amazon based business at 3 million that is diversified in its skew concentration that has a genuine brand. I know it's a, that's subjective and we could do a whole other podcast about brand, but we all know what that means who are listening right now. It's not a bunch, not a glorified dollar general store. It's got one vertical focus. It's got a real brand within a vertical focus. 3 million all Amazon business that looks like that or a $3 million EBITDA Amazon business that is a glorified dollar general store. Several different brands are just widgets within one seller central. It just feels very disorganized, but it does, you know, stamp some good cash flow. The one that's got brand at 3 million EBITDA is probably going to get more like a five, six multiple, even maybe a little bit more upside on other deal structure follow-ons. But then on the 3 million glorified dollar general store, three to four, maybe, maybe. Three to four X multiple. Yeah. So you're talking about difference. Let's just take the high side of both, right? So you're talking about $18 million trade versus a $12 million trade. And honestly, the one that I described as the glorified dollar general, it's getting harder and harder to find a home for those those folks. Because even now, these aggregator funds are looking for more strategic purchases. Got it. So are you like, how do you actually quantify brand quote unquote brand? Is that social media following? Is that like traffic to their off Amazon website, email list? Like I'd love to quantify that in dollar terms. You you can't, you really can't really what it does is it, 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 you have to, you have to present the business in a way that shows that the brand is going to, it's going to create a multiplying effect for the go forward opportunity. Because a staying power and brand means I can rotate off Amazon and I can develop an omni-channel strategy, right? Because I've got real brand, consumer, I've got real consumer loyalty. And so when you start looking at social media following or email, you know, email open rates of campaigns and, and you really start getting into the granular details of maybe even the Amazon repeat, per, you know, Amazon's starting to give more information with brand analytics. And so even kind of getting into that function or in the, into that part of Seller Central and really digging into that data, you can start reading what the what the brand power and staying power is of this particular company. Mm. And so it's hard to quantify, but what it does do is it drives the, the go forward value. So it's going to pull the multiple up. The metric is still going to be on trailing 12, but it's going to pull the multiple up when you're looking at a business that is that glorified dollar general. You know, they're basically at that point kind of like, okay, well, let's look at the unit economics of each individual skew because there's not a whole lot of brand here. And let's look at the cash flow. You know, where am I, where am I really headed with this thing in the next three years? And at that point, it's a much different view than this other one that's got that brand power. And let me flip some things on its head because Shopify, I know, is a big subject for yourself. And I think, I believe for your audience as well. An all Shopify business that has about 3 million of EBITDA, kind of the same, you know, tenants of brand, et cetera, that's, that's going to get a, that's going to get a strong trade. I mean, that could go all the way up to eight multiple, you know, depending, and even a little bit higher, just depending on the the product category. And uh, because man, when you got shop, when you, when you, when you're successful through a Shopify, it's a, it's a pretty serious indicator that you've got something. You got something uh, much, much bigger than just something you could go sell, you know, widgets through Amazon. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's that's kind of what I was, where I was going with this is that all dollars aren't created equal in terms of EBITDA if you consider what the channel is. And and so this is like my speculation. I don't know. But like if you sell a thousand dollars in Amazon, you're selling a thousand dollars, but there isn't really 
so much of an opportunity for a follow-on transaction as opposed to $1,000 on your own channel where you actually have the customer data. You can reach out, you know uh, who you can get some guesses, of course, on their contact information in there. And you have a greater likelihood of increasing lifetime value with follow-on opportunities. Amazon, an Amazon sale is an Amazon customer. And you can really only hope that like your packaging, your unboxing experience is enough to drive repeat purchases. So Heavily yeah, you nailed it. No, you're, I think your speculation is on the right. It's on the right course. It's on the right line. And until Amazon decides, and they're slowly, very slowly, kind of opening up the gate mm-hmm. <laughs> to allow you to have a little bit more exposure to your consumer and your customer through the Amazon platform. Amazon just happens to be a platform where you can grow faster. That's it. Like the growth trajectory on Amazon feels like this. The growth trajectory on Shopify feels more like you're actually taking off in a plane versus a fighter jet. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's a slow ascend all the way up to your cruising altitude. So, but you know, there is a lot of, there's a lot of stock and value placed inside of owning the data. You know, we had a, we had a, a pretty much an all direct, consumer brand that we sold two years ago to a private equity fund. And really, I mean, it was just at the bottom end of our, of our EBITDA range. It was just over a million actually. And we were able to get all in an eight multiple for that uh, direct to consumer stroller business close to an eight multiple. And mainly because a, they had a real product roadmap. It was believable. The go forward opportunity was super believable and they owned all of the data. And so you, you had the perfect storm. Now, if you were to get that up to a three or four or $5 million EBITDA company, by the time we sold it, you would have gotten at least a seven, eight, no questions asked, and probably would have had massive upside from there. So yeah, I mean, there's, there's a ton of, there's a ton more value when you're talking about being able to do it direct. It just so happens that there's just a lot of money chasing Amazon based businesses right now. That's, that's the reality and less money I mean, when it comes to an, we have we have three businesses right now that are all Shopify that we currently are are taking to market. They're in market, and it's slower. You get a lot more passes. You get a lot more. It's just a lot. It's a lot harder. The path is a lot longer. Versus, they say majority Amazon business. You got a lot of venture cat just chasing. You, they're chasing the tail, man. So. You know, it's just much, it's just it, in this time in history, it's a faster trade, but the yeah. other is way more valuable, a hundred percent. Yeah. So let's assume that we're, we're starting direct to consumer. So that's a, a Shopify brand, maybe move to Walmart or Amazon to kind of distribute or diversify income streams yeah. or revenue streams later. What from the outset can a merchant do to maximize value and I might say, all right, it's, it's you want your analytics and your finances in order so it's easy. So the, the process, once you're putting your marketing book together, is easier. Maybe it is focusing on the brand. Maybe it is, of course, like intellectual property or the product itself. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on from the outset, what yeah. you're looking for to set themselves up for success. Well, look, when you're in consumer products, product is king, period. No question. Mm-hmm. I mean, product is absolute 100% king. And when you really kind of start there and you focus on having true innovation inside of a product category, brand comes a whole hell of a lot easier at that point, right? Because you're able to truly innovate. So, I mean, 
number one, don't forget who brought you to the dance and really focus heavily on, on product and making sure that you're continually uh, innovating within a category. Look at all the great products that are out there, right? They were all developed and came to market because they brought some level of innovation. In some cases, just pure brand innovation, but in, in, and that's only in some and most, it was actual real consumer product innovation that got them to where they are today. So number one, just don't ever forget who got you to the dance, always focus on product, which really I, I tell people a lot. It's one of the bullet points when I get asked this question, is your product roadmap? Know it, know it well, spend time on it, you know, develop it and get to, get to know where, where you have kind of real, real opportunity within the category that you're, that you're playing in and really, really uh, try and avoid having product ADD as well, <laughs> become yeah. laser focused and really focus on the innovation. I mean, I came from juvenile products and I have a lot of friends who are still in the space. And, you know, a, a friend of mine actually was part of baby products brand that you would know, uh, baby jogger and was able to really, they built that through innovation, by the way. So it's a, now a brand name. They built it through innovation. And I don't, I don't know if you have kids or not, or if you've ever even shopped for baby strollers. I do. Is but, it like the three-wheeled, one-wheeled yeah, in front, in the back? Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. And it's got the middle, like, and so basically those guys, really interesting story. I don't want to get on a rabbit trail, but really interesting story. Those guys were, a, they're st they still are, they're, they were a golf company. And they went to a defunct factory and we were getting a factory tour and they actually saw a golf bag that was able to fold from the middle of the golf cart. It's like not a golf bag, but a golf cart. It folded from the middle. And the guys also had this, like, they had baby jogger. They were joggers, like just jogging strollers was a dying brand, but they went ahead and bought the assets to it. And they went, oh my God, if I put that innovation on a stroller, I think I have a winning formula. And guess what? They took that innovation, put on a stroller and, and it created a brand. <laughs> Literally, that innovation created a brand. And then they just built on that and they were able to sell their business to a middle market. They ended up selling to a middle market PE fund. And then they had a second exit to Graco, Newell Rubbermaid. Mm. So focus, man, it's important. Like if I, if that's one thing I'm, I will absolutely get on soapbox. You nailed the financial organization. I actually just did a webinar late last night to some folks in Singapore and Australia about the four P's of financial organization. So I'm going to create, so anybody who's listening, we're going to create a content piece on that. I'm, I'm happy to send that to you and you can, you know, yeah, yeah whatever. If anybody asks for that, and they can get a hold of me and I'll have it on my website here probably in the next two or three weeks, but it's the four P's and that's a whole thing. <laughs> and so that's a, it's a long drawn out, but it's, it's, it's a lot about being, you know, preparation. It's about presentation. It's about projections and it's about performance. And so really kind of outlining that and looking at it from a, a good lens. And then you also nailed the other one. I mean, you're on the right track. You got to know your data, man. If you don't know your data, you're just a lost puppy, right? I mean, when you learn how to fly, uh, and I took about 20 hours when I was in high school <laughs> and learning how to fly a plane, you first learn VFR and then you learn IFR, right? Well, VFR is the easiest way to fly a plane. It's typically how novice pilots or just, you know, you're, you're basically, it's called visual, right? You're looking every, out everywhere. You can see where the runway is. What does it stand for? I have, uh, visual flight reference. Got and then it. IFR is instrument flight reference. And so IFR is, is much more difficult because you actually have to read the panel. And if you get one of the instruments wrong in the panel, well, you're going to be in trouble, <laughs> right? If you don't know how to read altitude, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. And so it's the same thing really that applies to just good, solid business, business practices within a small business, medium or enterprise. 
It's about knowing your data and know how to read that data to make the strategic decisions to really continue to grow and scale the company. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Oh, no, I, I always love to learn what people's like KPIs are. And, and so marketing dashboard, of course, it might be different. It might be something like acquisition costs or marketing spend, return on <laughs> ad spend, general like sales, revenue, traffic, your, your data, what your, your instrument IFR really yeah. is like most important. Of course, it's probably like top line sales, right? Then EBITDA, then yeah, like what we look for, it, it's all very company specific because, you know, we just took a business to market that their Facebook ad campaigns had a very low ROAS, but it was fine because it was another baby products business, but the, the ROAS was very low on the swaddle, basically, that mm. you're purchasing as a parent. So it really gets the parent in the door. And so you're okay with, with a much lower ROAS, right? Because you're getting more people into your community. And then when you got them, they sold product all the way. So that was like zero to three months. And then they had product all the way from three months, all the way up to five years old that they were selling. So you've got a really long life cycle with a potential consumer. So you're totally fine making this the milk and eggs Mm. in the grocery store, right? Because you're going to be able to do all kinds of things with them all the way until five years old. So it really is company dependent. I mean, there's other folks that you know, have a very, very large AOV. You know, we're talking to a guy right now that's got an AOV of almost $1,800, right? So obviously his KPIs are going to look a lot different because his his gross margin percentage is normal, but his gross margin dollars are huge. So his cost to acquire a customer can go astronomical if he wants to, because at an AOV of 1,800, that guy's making 900 or, you know, $1,000 every single sale. So, you know, to go to a hundred bucks to acquire, sure, man, not a problem, right? But if you're selling toothpaste or if you're selling an AOV that's less than 30 or 20, good luck, <laughs> you know, you're, you're upside down, you're underwater. So as far as kind of a KPI dashboard when it comes to marketing metrics, metrics, I mean, yeah, you want to see top line growth. You want to, and if the EBITDA growth is also in line and very healthy, I mean, that is an absolute 50,000 foot view that I'm staring at a healthy business. Then when you start getting to the guts, you start to see why it's because all those KPIs and marketing and sales and whatever, uh, you know, operational, operational leverage and efficiencies, all those other metrics are now starting to play and and they're showing you a really healthy company. Mm -hmm. Do do you value a, a business differently depending on the acquisition channels? Like if there is a business that's heavily reliant on paid, then that might be worth less per se, because it's it's not an own channel as opposed to maybe yeah. influencer or or mail or direct email. Yeah, it really is. It, it, it's <clears throat> as far as valuing, I mean, the good news with with an investment banking process, we're putting your deal in what we call, <laughs> we're putting your deal in front of what we call big boys and we let them value the business. You know, business brokers will put you out at a price point and they'll handcuff you to that price point. And then they'll say things like, oh yeah, we're getting overpaid for our deals. And I'm like, you already undervalued it. It's like me buying a Trek bike. And then the next day I put it on the Facebook marketplace, you know, for, you know, 300 or $400 less. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I got 20 bids on this thing. It's like, yeah, you sold it too cheap, dummy. Mm. And so, you know, we're not, we're not doing that. So we're really letting the, the, the buyer, the acquirer value the company. And it really is just a matter of comfort level with everything you just said, you know, there's going to be acquirers who go influencers. Ooh, what if someone tomorrow comes along and pays them more money and that goes away? And so they're not as comfortable with that. And other buyers are like, 
no, nah, man, that's our strategy for three of our portfolio companies, highly comfortable with influencer marketing. And then, so we could go down every one of those examples that you gave, and it's a matter of just really to the buyer and to the potential acquirer, each one is different. It's their own risk analysis on all of the different uh, acquisition channels. Yeah. I was actually going to ask that. So it's a great segue of how a merchant can de-risk when they are you know, operating, but then also when they're yeah. going to market, trying to sell it. Yeah. I mean, great question. I think yeah, obviously channel diversification will help you kind of de-risk, right? So, I mean, anytime that you've got heavy concentration of revenue across the board and anything is, you know, going to make the risk a bit higher. So, you know, let's, let's pick on Amazon for a moment. It's way riskier to put all of your, all of your eggs in one basket on Amazon because they could suspend your account tomorrow mm -hmm. than it is over on Shopify. Now, some people will hear me say that and go, yeah, but, but I mean, because Facebook ads manager suspends people all the time and it's actually terrible. <laughs> Not a lot of people talk about it as much as Amazon, but it happens, but it happens a whole lot less. And the impact is less than if you got suspended on Amazon, you lose all your revenue, you're done. Sure. And so, yeah, so from that perspective, you can de-risk by diversification, but then you can really flow that into everything you do, even into your SKUs, right? I mean, you got 10 SKUs and two of them are producing most of your revenue versus being able to really have a SKU diversification a strategy where, you know, every, maybe the top SKU produces 20%, but everything else produces, you know, five, 10, 15%, you know, that's, that's good diversification and that's always going to help de-risk. And then if you've got a strong forward opportunity on the business, that's believable. I mean, that helps mitigate all the risk. Mm -hmm. I think that's so interesting because like it, in some ways it sounds like a merchant is actually selling, you know, based on the product roadmap and how, how much that can actually be a feasible image or, or yeah. a future, which is really interesting that there, that there is this element of like potential upside in it. And that it's not necessarily what is already present. And, you know, like, yeah. I mean, of, of course, it's a part of it, but you're able to add so many more dollars maybe to yeah. the ultimate transaction based on what the future holds. Well, yeah, because that's, that's where, that's where the buyer is going to benefit. And so, you know, and, and sophisticated acquirers are used to working on business plans that go out for three years. You know, they're very comfortable mm -hmm. in that world. You know, when you have a McKinsey come into your business your enterprise business and you ask them to consult and put together a business plan, you know, they're not, they're not going to give you, they're going to give you an assessment only about the past to inform the future. And then they're going to give you a, a, a plan. Right. And so sophisticated acquirers, they're, they're very comfortable in that type of conversation. And so if you can put something together, that's extremely believable by, by presenting the data in a very organized fashion, of the past and the present, then yeah, you've got a go forward opportunity that's very believable. And absolutely, you'll be able to pull up that multiple. I mean, we just got a bid on a business that what, what I referenced earlier, that's 11 million of projected EBITDA for this year. We're only in June, projected till December. And we got a bid for five to six multiple on the projected EBITDA, mm. not the trailing 12. Like this is a growth business and the acquirer sees how strong that growth really is and is willing to pay up for unrealized EBITDA for the remainder of this year. Yeah. Now, cool. earlier you mentioned, all right, we're, we're in maybe a frothy <laughs> market. Multiples are, are going higher. There's a lot of demand for it. And if we talk about like what the, the 
projections look like kind of like from your perspective as an investment bank, are we in a bubble per se? Is this like kind of like the new normal where COVID moved more retail, general retail sales online? What is it? Maybe like 30% of all sales happen online now. So there's there's some sense, I think things are going back to in-person brick and mortar retail, but I think e-commerce of course has experienced a surge that might be here to stay. Yeah. What's your projection? Of course, impossible to say with certainty, but you know, like when, when this trend might, how it might change, what the future might look like for e-commerce. Yeah, there's, there's a couple different sources that have come out recently and just kind of done some, what I would call intelligent speculation. And so, you know, number one, what we're living through right now, we would have been living through in 2024, or 2025. So really what we got, got is just a giant fast forward, right? Fortunately though, we just cemented through the pandemic, some real change in consumer behavior, like it's not going away. And you did it in specific demographic tiers like baby boomers, right? That have a lot of discretionary income and you taught them how to use the Amazon app where before they were driving to the grocery store. And while they still might now as part of their purchasing behavior, you're going to have now a mixture of that, that same boomer buying online for groceries. And then also maybe still going to the store where before it was probably only the store. So you've changed and you've shifted. It's brought a lot more investment and innovation dollars into now e-commerce that's gonna make, that's gonna make the, the behavior continue to change and stay sticky. And so you're gonna continue to see fast growth, I think at least until now. This is the other sources of what they're saying around, Wall Street Journal thinks around 24 to 20, you know, 2024, 20, 2025, We'll start seeing a slowdown. That doesn't mean it went like this and now it's going to do this. What it means is that you're in a fighter jet and now you're going to start kind of still climbing and ascending. It's just the the growth rate now is going to slow. It's going to, it's going to slow down a bit. Right. So you're talking e-commerce sales. How about from the e-commerce valuation? Yeah. That well, will I mean, also kind of taper off. That's all going to keep going up. The difference yeah. though is as this, as e-commerce matures and as these businesses grow, you're gonna see acquirers looking for more strategic type of acquisition, right? So way back earlier, when we talked about that example of the glorified dollar general, it's gonna be like almost impossible for that type of business to get a trade in the next call it three or four years. You know, and it might happen, but it just won't be a great, it won't be a good trade. Multiples are already expanding. We've seen it over the past two years. And so, yes, we fully expect that the multiples are gonna keep going up. They'll probably normalize at some point, you know, because when you look at like, when you look at consumer goods and you look at a mid, at middle market consumer product, uh, product companies, right? CPG businesses. And you look at the past two decades, the average multiple for a middle market where that's about 10, 15, 20 million of EBITDA plus, the average multiples have been between seven to 13 and they kind of have stayed very consistent. So, I mean, e-commerce kind of driven businesses It'll also be vertical, but you know, vertical driven too. Like pet will always be better than consumer electronics, right? And so you're gonna you're gonna continue to see both with vertical and e-commerce those multiples going up, but they're all gonna normalize in a range as we continue to move forward. So got it. Okay. But yes, markets very. There's a lot of fast money right now. So when you mentioned bubble, I think that there is a there is a Mike. <laughs> There's a micro trend right now within Amazon-based businesses. A lot of venture money is chasing it very hard and fast. And I think that there's going to be a lot, there's a lot of sloppiness 
that that comes with that. They're buying bad stuff. Some of these funds are just buying really bad businesses. They've already started to see failure with these companies that they've purchased. I think you're gonna. I think you're gonna see some. Ma- There's a hundred aggregators right now, and you're gonna see some. Con- they're they're already starting to consolidate. You're gonna see failure here in the next probably 12 months. And then really what's what's happening on kind of just the Amazon-based businesses, that's really all it affects. You're going to see maturity and it's just going to roll into kind of more of a mature a mature market where, you know, you've got private equity that has now come in, come in. They're already started to. They're getting more comfortable with Amazon platform risk. And so you're going to have more and more private equity come in. They pay up for the strategic acquisitions. These aggregators are going to have to flip their model and just mature and, and, and look different in a year or two years from now than they look like today. Yeah. What was it? Thrasio raised like 750 million earlier this year. And, and I, I just checked, uh, value at maybe three to 4 billion acquiring like a couple million dollars in revenue every single day, which is, I don't know if you're alluding to them in particular, but that's kind of maybe the, the roll-up strategy with the kind of like strictly Amazon businesses. So they have that platform risk, but I think it goes back to what you were talking about earlier and the value of a brand and how that is reflected in the multiples that if you're able to have a diverse channel of distribution, not all on Amazon, then you might see that being valued higher. If you have, you know, so the the brand, the channel, and then the four P's that you mentioned. Yeah, that's right. No, it's exactly right. I mean, someone like grass is going to be really interesting because you know, they, they have first mover advantage over all of these other aggregators. And on top of the fact, you know, they're, they're probably going to IPO here in the next six to nine months. And I mean, they're kind of the canary in the coal mine, man, when it comes to something like this, this type of business model now being a publicly traded company, and you get to kind of see how shareholders think about it. It's a lot more be interesting to see the S1 there, right? Yes. Very interesting. <laughs> yeah. And just being able to read their public 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 data, you know, and be able to actually get in because this market is so privatized right now. There's a ton of water cooler talk. There's a ton of hearsay. And when you can actually start digging in and getting into the real data that's that's exposed publicly, whew, it'll be nice. <laughs> no, no kidding. No kidding. Chris, thank you so much. This is super interesting. So the the best way to reach you for Global Wired Advisors and, and just yeah. in general. Yeah. So just if you go to Google and you type in global wired advisors and for the 5% of us who are still using Bing and Yahoo, you know, do the same and uh, we'll come up number one. My email address is cs at globalwiredadvisors.com. Um, and my website's going to have that 4P content here probably in the next two to three weeks or so. And we got all kinds of really good content. We have a whole media, you know, past webinars that we've done. We've got a lot like we have, we have, our blog is very intentional. We try and write about things that people would care about, not just for SEO purposes. Totally. <laughs> and, and a fun uh, valuation tool. Yeah, we Drop do. We have that kind of the 80,000 valuation tool. And really, you know, true middle market investment banks don't have something like that. We we just knew that this that's where the, the owner operator in this market is. They, they like to kind of put their numbers in and see what happens. But yeah, contact me if you're really getting serious about wanting to have a conversation about an exit plan or strategy. And even if you're not and you just have lots of questions, we're here to help. Chris, this is awesome. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thank you, man. And that's the episode for today. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. We love you for it. If you found anything valuable at all or want to share your feedback, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. 
And you can also just drop us a line, hello at partoverflow.com. We'd love to hear your feedback or suggestions so we can cover it in a future episode. All right, see you next time.